Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pilgrim Devotion. I am your host, Michael Howard, the pastor of Seaford Baptist Church, and this podcast is for anyone inside or outside of Seaford Baptist Church that's living the pilgrim life, representing the kingdom of God in the kingdom of man. And happy Reformation Day to everyone. It is upon us. God blessed us with yet another October 31st, and uh, on this day, we celebrate the Protestant Reformation. We celebrate uh, the fact that for all intents and purposes, it began with Martin Luther 506 years ago, nailing the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. There are things that happened before and after that are incredibly important, but uh, everyone understands that really to be uh, the beginning. And uh, from there... Uh, the Protestant Reformation spread like wildfire from Germany uh, into France and Switzerland and England and Scotland. And you go from Luther to uh, Calvin and Tyndale and, and, and to Knox. And so when we talk about Reformed theology, it's the theology that flows out of the Protestant Reformation, that flows out of these reformers. And I went over last week uh, a little bit about the definitions, and I don't want to do too much of a recap uh, since you could just go back and listen to that episode. But when we talk about Reformed theology, a lot of people just think of Calvinism. They think of the five points of Calvinism, the tulip, uh, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, the perseverance of the saints. There's other definitions, or, or excuse me, other uh, alternate terms you could use. Uh, like instead of limited atonement, you could say definite atonement or particular redemption. But the tulip, the five points of Calvinism, this is really what a lot of people think of when they think of Reformed theology. But as we said last week, that's just a, a part of it. It's an important part of it. But that's just a part of it, us understanding God to be the author and the finisher of our faith. But Reformed theology really uh, is, is much bigger than that. Uh, it impacts what we understand the source of authority to be. It's the Bible. Uh, it impacts uh, how we gather and worship. Uh, certainly Reformed theology impacts how we even read the Bible. Because Reformed folks are going to look at the Bible and say, look, God is communicating his saving purposes to us in covenants. Uh, and then you're going to notice that folks that are Reformed tend to be uh, confessional. They're going to hold to a confession of faith, uh, like the Belgic Confession or the Westminster Confession. Uh, and it, I mentioned last week the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. I love that confession of faith, uh, cornerstone confession of faith for Southern Baptists. I uh, don't agree with all of the 1689, particularly when we're talking about the Sabbath. That's really where I, I have some disagreement, uh, but that's a different podcast episode. <laughs> um, but yeah, Reformed theology is much bigger than just the tulip. It is all of those things that uh, I just mentioned. But how did I come into contact with it? You know, I, I listen, I'm not Joel Beakey here folks. Uh, if you know anything about Joel Beakey's stories, one of my favorite commentators on the Bible, commentators, commenters, I'm not sure the right uh, word there, but uh, yeah, he's one of my favorite uh, writers just in general. Uh, love to hear the guy preach. Love Joel Beakey. 
And he famously like grew up eight, nine years old, pulling his dad's Puritan books off the shelves and reading them and uh, grew up around ministry and grew up, grew, I mean, he's reading, you know, Thomas Brooks uh, before, you know, he, when he was reading Thomas Brooks, I could tell you, instead of the five points of Calvinism, I could tell you the five Power Rangers. That's what, <laughs> that's what I could tell you, you know, Jason and, and Billy and Kimberly, I could tell you that. So... I, I, you know, I'm not a guy that came up, I wasn't even saved when I was eight or nine. I, I didn't grow up in the church at all. Uh, it wasn't until I was a teenager that I became a Christian. And I became a Christian in a very, very uh, Arminian sort of background. And so a lot of people in the church have asked me, how did you even come in contact with Reformed theology? How did you become a Calvinist? Why are you a Calvinist? What convinced you? And that's what I want to spend today's episode really talking about. It's kind of telling my story and talking about the things that really convinced me and uh, not really trying to like sway you. That's not really my point here. Uh, I want to speak from a place from hum of humility. I want to keep the gospel primary like we talked about last week. But I, I do want to share and uh, am excited to share. So let let's talk about it here uh, just, just a little bit. So like I said, I came up in uh, a, a household where we weren't Christians. When I became a Christian, it was at Red Lane Baptist Church, which at the time, you know, was a very sort of uh, just a, a typical rural Baptist scene, uh, family family run church in some ways, certainly deacon run. Uh, the pastor is leading the church alongside deacons, a lot of governing power with deacons. And there's altar calls, and we're having contemporary services where we are certainly encouraging emotions to flow, and um, we're going to summer camps where there's big altar calls, and I'm saved at one of those summer camps. I go with this church in July of 1999. My parents are new Christians, and they were on the trip as well. Uh, it was actually kind of crazy, and this is just, again, it's a rural church in the 90s that's deacon-run. And you certainly probably had men governing that church who shouldn't have been, and so there's not the level of oversight there should have been. I'm not. It's a. It's a. I, I have nothing bad to say about Red Lane Baptist Church uh, now. And when I look back on it, I look back on it very fondly. That was my church family. That's where I met my Lord. I love, love that church and those people. Uh, so this is no bashing. This is just the reality of what the situation was at the time. And um, so I'm at this church and. Uh, my parents become Christians, and and they're like, "Hey, you want to run the youth group?" And that, that's that is pretty much what happened. At least they handed the keys to them, and said, "Take them to, to South Carolina. Let let them let these people who've been members of the church for less than six months take the students uh, six hours away." So we we did it though. We went to South Carolina and went to Crossroads Summer Camp. Clayton King was the speaker, and if you know anything about Clayton. Uh, a man of God, I love Clayton, but certainly is a man who loves to see decisions at the altar, and he does not apologize for leading people to Christ through sinners' prayers at altars, and um, kind of uh, stereotypical late 90s evangelist in that way. I think Clayton is one of the best just gospel communicators that I've ever heard. Uh, I think he is a missionary at heart, and uh, he is the man that led me to Jesus. Like, I love me some Clayton King, okay? But he certainly comes from a much more Arminian point of view. And that became pervasive in our youth group because of Crossroads Summer Camp. Again, I'm so grateful for Crossroads Summer Camp and so much of, of what Clayton's ministry did for my life, my family's life, and 
even Red Lane Baptist Church. So um, that 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 church that we were at, I mean, we're talking almost thirty years ago, folks. Is that how long it's been? It's not quite thirty, is it? No, not quite thirty. Uh, it's like twenty-five years, though. Uh, so, anyways, I'm going to try not to ramble here and get too biographical and really get more to some of the theological points. But I get saved at the summer camp going down, you know, it was this bow your head, you know, every eye closed, every head bowed, nobody looking around, raise your hand if you want to know Jesus. I put my hand in the air. If you put your hand in the air, we want you to stand up. I stood up. If if you stood up, we want you to come down to the altar and I go down this, it's in this big basketball arena at Gardner-Webb University and I go down there and I pray a sinner's prayer and the Holy Spirit, I, I am, I am, really sure that the Holy Spirit regenerated me in that moment. That is when I became a Christian. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I, yeah, I, it was really insane. It just, I, it's all I can say about July 14th, 1999 is that, uh, the day that I met the Lord was, it's not the same way for everybody. Uh, but it was a pretty dramatic scene for me. It was very emotional and I felt I feel very felt I feel very much like those emotions were real for me. I will say that in the years that followed, I began to kind of sniff the air though and go, "What's going on around here?" Like we we would go to the events and I would see the altar calls and some kids go, went down every year and 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 there's these numbers being reported of how many are being saved and I would think, "Well, how many really were saved?" Because I know in my youth group like four went down that went down last year. So how many really were saved? And then we go to YEC and like same group would go down, you know? It's like we're getting saved at every event here and just kind of getting swept up in a lot of that. And again, I think people are being saved. I think there's real emotion. I also think there are people who definitely are not being saved and they're getting swept up in emotion and they are making decisions and I think that's why altar calls can be really confusing, and uh, and and uh, that's again probably a different podcast. So I'll, just, I'll leave that there. But uh, I, I started to wonder, you know, we're singing these songs and we're learning a lot about like what we should and should not do externally. But I thought I'm not like we we say we're saved by grace, like we sing Amazing Grace say that we're saved by grace and not by works. I remember in youth group one day, I was like, hey, does anybody know what that word means? And nobody really knew what it meant. And I was just bothered. I just felt like everything was just like a lot of, a lot of hoopla. And if I had just probably gone and sniffed around the adult classes, what I would have found is a bunch of really mature Christians ready to answer my questions. And instead, I just looked at my peers and thought I was better than them, and I was an arrogant teenager. Like, if I could, I, I look back at that time and loathe, loathe. You know, I know that everybody does that, right? But I look back at it, and I'm just like, ugh, ugh. Just kind of the attitude I had was, well, if nobody can answer these questions, well, I mean. So I started going to a different youth group, and that was at Grove Avenue Baptist, which was a really big church. In Richmond, it was a far drive, but I did that for a couple months. I I enjoyed it, um, but it was pretty unsustainable to go there that much. But it was there that I first met like this guy. I went out to lunch with these two guys. I don't remember their names. They both played guitar. We hung out and played guitar afterwards. It was super fun, and I I have thought about them before and just thought those are nice guys. So I I remember talking to them. We went to lunch at Moe's, and they were like, "So are you a, a Calvinist?" And I was like, what is that? (laughs) I didn't know what that was. And they said, do you believe in predestination? I said, well, I knew it was in the Bible. Uh, I've seen the word, right? 
So I said, well, it's in the Bible, right? Predestined. And they were like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, well, I don't know. I was like, I, I, I believe it. It's in the Bible. And they were like, yeah, man, yeah. I, I didn't know what was going on. I think they started to recognize I didn't know what was going on. So they stopped talking to me about it. And uh, that was the last time I really heard of it for quite a while. I get to college and I'm confronted with liberal theology at Virginia Commonwealth University. Don't have a real strong theological background because I came from this sort of like a more of an emotional scene. And, uh, and I, again, I didn't really make a great effort to be discipled. I didn't seek out discipleship from some older man in the church or anything. So I can't blame anybody for that. But I get to VCU and it, it kind of blew my doors off a bit. But what blew my doors off more was I had this question that was really bothering me. And the question was, why is God creating people that he knows will never choose him? Like they're going to go to hell. Like as, as, as heavy as that is, like they are just, they're never going to choose him. They're going to hate him from birth to death. And they will never choose him. Some of them won't even know him. Like they won't even know his name. And... It really, really bothered me of why, why is he creating these people if he knows everything, if history is written from the end to the beginning like scripture says, if, then what's going on with this? And it bothered me so much that I put my Bibles in a box and I put them away and I pretty much just ran from the Lord for about a year and a half over that question. I used it as an excuse for my sin. It was ridiculous. Uh, and then I, I from there... Um, God was really good to me in the time that I ran from him to not give up on me. And this is one of the reasons that I so strongly believe in the, the perseverance of the saints. I had little spurts where I would show back up at church and read my Bible here and there. Uh, but man, I really, really floundered for about a year and a half. And then this guy named Josh Kappas came to my life and Josh gave me a book by... I want to say Wayne Grudem that answered some questions. It was some sort of theological questions book. I want to say that's what it was. And that wasn't about Calvinism for me. It didn't answer that question. I had kind of put that question to bed. I was so miserable in my life, I just wanted Jesus at that point. The Lord just took me down to nothing. And so I kind of started at square one, started to build a theology. Josh helped me build my theology up. And Josh was not, uh, I, I don't believe, I haven't jo talked to Josh about this in a while, but I don't believe my brother's reformed. Uh, but man, do I love that man. He had such a huge hand in my life. So Josh really nursed me back to health. And then this guy named Jeff Beard comes in my life. Uh, I had met Jeff when I was a teenager doing some preaching in Powhatan, and he comes and he asked me to be the student ministry intern at Old Powhatan Baptist. And so I go there. While I'm at Old Powhatan Baptist, I am uh, starting to dabble in some liberal theology, some emergent church stuff, if you go back and look up that term. Just a lot of what really I think has become this deconstructionist movement where people are questioning and then deconstructing their faith, and then they basically reconstruct their faith, some of them uh, with a God in the image of themselves, and then some of them just abandon faith altogether. And um, I, I think that the emergent church is the, the daddy to that movement. I was starting to dabble in some of that stuff. I didn't know it, uh, but Jeff discipled me really well as my associate pastor when I was the student ministry intern there, and he 
He, along with some guys at InterVarsity at VCU, got me into Way of the Master. So I start listening to Way of the Master Radio, which is this evangelism ministry. And Todd Friel, who is the host of Way of the Master Radio, and Friel is exposing me to John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, uh, J. Ligon Duncan. Uh, he is exposing me to, uh, well, Ray Comfort, of course, because he's there. Um, now, Ray Comfort, I, I don't believe that Ray Comfort's a Reformed brother either. Uh, Kirk Cameron, I don't know where he stands on it. Uh, I don't go seeking it out, you know. It's, it, I, I probably look up uh, people's net worth more than that because my wife and I like to, when we see celebrities on TV, like, how much you think they're worth? So, uh, yeah, I'm not, like, out there trying to find out who's Reformed and who's not, but I think I remember Ray, Ray Comfort not being Reformed and his understanding of how God saves people. But uh, regardless, I was listening to Way the Master Radio every day with Todd Friel for three hours, and he's exposing me to all of these Reformed teachers, all of this really good Bible teaching. He's teaching me, he is teaching me what expository teaching is. Jeff is teaching me what expository teaching is. And Todd Friel says, go get a MacArthur study Bible and read every verse in the New Testament. And so I do that. I get it and I read every verse in, well, I don't read every verse in the New Testament. I start to read every verse in the New Testament. And I start read to, to read MacArthur's study notes. And you're not going to get very far into MacArthur's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John study notes before you start to get some questions about, <laughs> wait a second, what's he saying here? So at some point when I'm in the Gospels, I fast forward to Ephesians 1, because I, kn I, I know that it's always been the text I go to where I'm like, yeah, I mean, I believe in some level of predestination because of this text. So I go to Ephesians 1, I start reading Ephesians 1, I read his notes there, and I read his notes in Romans 9, and I guess I don't take in what I read, because then I go to my friend Jeff Beard, my pastor, and I say, Jeff, brother, who's been on this podcast, by the way, I say, Jeff, so God chose us. I, I figured it out, right? God looks down the halls of history, and he knows who will choose him, and then he bases his choice on who's going to choose him. And Jeff said, yeah, but if his choice is based on your choice, is it really grace? Isn't there a little bit of your work in there? And I was like, huh. And I was like, well, then what is it? <laughs> I remember this was on a Wednesday night after youth group. And he explains basically what I explained in the last episode in the tulip portion to me. And I was like, this is trash. I was like, are you kidding me? You believe this? Like, he, he was like, let's just stop here for tonight. <laughs> and he gets chosen by God by R.C. Sproul for me. I open it up and I read in the opening, here it is, let me read it to you. Michael, this book has been a favorite of mine for many years. The reformed foundation of the sovereignty of God is made clear and glorious. The closer is to his sovereignty that you step, the closer to the ground your face will be, and worship gratitude and humility. True faith is ever occupied with God. Faith to be immovable and unconquerable will find its place in the sovereign will of our God. Enjoy. Jeff, Lisa, Jen, and Garrett Beard, Easter, 2006. Whew. I hadn't looked at that in a while, and uh, I am so thankful for Jeff. So I get that book, and I don't read it right away. I start reading it, I end up putting it down, and I instead read The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And that is the book that at some point while reading it, I sat it down and I said, I believe that I am a Calvinist. I think that I believe in the doctrines of grace, reform theology, whatever you want to call 
the five points there that we went over, I said, I, I think I believe these things. Um, I, I had I had bought in. I had believed that is that from the scriptures, this is what is being revealed to us uh, about God and, and about how he saves. And so I, I'm going to tell you exactly what it was. So now I'm starting to get kind of into some of my convictions and, and, and how they formed. So it was the holiness of God, the copy that I have, the revised and expanded edition. I don't think anybody's got this copy anymore. Um, this is old 1985 edition. Uh, he's talking about Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. Okay. Well, if you keep reading... Then he says, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And I was like, start doing the math a little bit, you know what I mean? And I'm like, wait a second. So at the beginning, he's telling them, he's speaking to them about these other kind of like people groups around them, right? At the beginning of, of Deuteronomy 7. Uh, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, you know, you got, you're going to clear out the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, all those ites. But then when you get down to uh, verses 3 through 7, and he's saying, you know, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession. Chosen you, Israel, not the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Chosen you. Okay, well, why did he choose them? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It is because the Lord loves you. Why did he choose them? Because he loves them. God, in his free choice, which he is completely free, right? Um, everything that he does is righteous, but he's completely free to do what he wills as the sovereign maker, creator, and ruler of the entire universe. This Lord, this God, this creator chose Israel because he loved them. You say, well, if that's his relationship to them, he has a he is not elected, right? to love the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites with the same covenant love that he has elected to love Israel with. Once I understood that, I thought, well, I don't have any problem with unconditional election. So this whole idea of if God's choice is based on your choice, it isn't really grace. I was like, well, yeah, I agree with that. And I don't have any problem with it being God's choice. It's his choice to love. And, and the nature of love is electing. I elected to love my wife and to not love in a covenant manner all the other women in the world. And so um, the, the nature of love uh, in, in, in that way uh, is, is electing. Uh, and, 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 of course, there's different types of love, we would say, right? Like, I love all the children in our church, but I don't love all the children in our church the way that I love my children. I have a special fatherly love for my children because they're my children. They belong to my household. And in the same way, God loves all of the people of the earth as uh, people that he has made 
uh, in his image, but he has a special covenant love for those that belong to his household, and he is elected to love them. He chose to love them, and his choice is just based on his love. And so uh, that was a big, big domino to fall for me. Okay, so then I go to seminary and I get to Liberty and I am eating, drinking, sleeping and breathing non-reformed theology. And I was used to being in a situation where the perspective I'm hearing is not necessarily what I believe or what I came in believing because I was at VCU and I had the same experience. I mean, once I came back to the Lord, I'm I am listening to Way of the Master Radio every day and still going to all those liberal religion classes. Uh, when I ran from the Lord, I changed my major to mass comm because I was going to be a sports broadcaster. Uh, and then I switched from that back to religious studies. Uh, I could have just gotten a mass communications degree, but whatever. It was probably easier to get the religion degree looking back, so that's fine. Uh, I got the religion degree, and then I go to seminary. And so at the end of my religious studies degree, I was constantly feeling like I'm disagreeing with my professors. I go to Liberty. It was a breath of fresh air because at least we believe the Bible is true right here. At least I know that every guy that's getting up there to speak to me, whether we believe in how God saves or not, we believe that God does save and that Jesus is the only way. Like there was some some common ground that I hadn't had for a long, long time. And man, was I hungry for it. So I loved it. I got there and I was on fire. But I certainly, I mean, I had a guy in in class, a professor, say, I'm not even going to say his name because I think that this was such a ridiculous comment. Actually, I may have said his name in the podcast already did, so whatever. But anyways, one of my professors said that uh, limited atonement is heresy. Limited atonement, the third point of the tulip is heresy. And I, I, I wanted to to yell, I was like, man, you, that is that is absolutely absurd what you have said, uh, you know. Anyways, so uh, it, it's absurd because he has called so many of the Baptists who laid the foundation of our denomination heretics in saying that. Uh, and more than just Baptists, but I mean, we just we wanted to just talk about Baptist life because I was at a Baptist seminary. It was called Liberty Baptist Theological at the time. Uh, you have just called so many good, faithful Baptist brothers heretics. Just it, it, was, it was an ignorant comment coming from a professor at a seminary. It was alarming to me. Uh, but that was my seminary. That's where I went. And I had a lot of professors I really loved that were awesome. And uh, I, you know, I'm not sure I'd go there if you let me do it again. You know, I'm not sure that's the place I go, but it's the place I went. So I, I didn't come from a Calvinistic background, and I certainly didn't come from uh, a Calvinistic seminary. And so while I'm at seminary, I finally get out chosen by God, given to me by uh, Jeffrey, and I start reading through it, and here is another thing that really helped me out, is uh, in Chosen by God, he's talking about 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is a verse a lot of people point to and say, see, God wants everybody in the world to repent. Uh, He's calling on everyone in the world to repent and wants everyone in the world to repent and Jesus died for everyone and uh, and it is possible that everybody in the world right now could just just repent of their sin and turn to Jesus and everybody be saved. Um, And that, that this is what this verse is about, that God is in heaven sad that he is not able to get everyone to repent. Uh, that is what a lot of people say. Now, when 
we look at this, Sproul says the Bible speaks of God's will in a few different ways. You have God's sovereign will, and that is the things he's going to bring to pass with absolute certainty. Nothing resists his sovereign will, okay? Is that what he means here? Is it uh, the Lord is not sovereignly willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance? Let's hold that thought. Maybe it's talking about it in terms of his preceptive will. His preceptive will refers to his commands. Uh, like, he, he wills that you would honor your father and mother, but we break his commands, right? We, we sin. So I don't think it's talking about his preceptive will. That doesn't make any sense that uh, it would be against his commandment uh, for, for you to, to perish. That doesn't make any sense. So a third way the Bible speaks to the will of God, he says, uh, has reference to God's disposition, meaning what is pleasing to him, saying, uh, so it's not pleasing to God that all would not come to repentance. And that is the way, that's the Arminian understanding of, of the verse, uh, as far as I know, right? Uh, that he's not willing that any should perish, anybody, any human uh, should perish, and he is just, he, he is sad. That is, he is a disposition of sadness, um, you know, because of the situation, that there are people that he's that, that are not repenting. So if, if you try to like make sense of these these, you know, the first one doesn't make any sense that he he has sovereignly decreed that none should perish. If that was the case, no one would perish. Makes no sense. The second one doesn't make any sense. Uh I'm sorry, let's 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 come back. Let's come back to the first one in a second. If he sovereignly decreed that no one would perish like no one in the world would perish, that would make no sense. But let's come back to the first one, because it may make sense here in a moment. Uh, the second one, his preceptive will, that makes no sense. I already went over that. The third alternative is that God takes no delight in the perishing of people. Again, I think that's really the Arminian explanation of the passage. It's, it's uh, Sproul says it's possible and attractive, uh, this, this you know definition, to use in resolving this passage with what the Bible teaches about predestination, uh, yet there's another factor to be considered. The text says more than simply that God is not willing that any should perish. The whole clause is important, but is long-suffering toward us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So does it refer to all humans, or does it refer just to Christians, the true Israel, those who will repent, those who belong to the Lord? If we read it and we understand him saying here that he doesn't will that any of the elect should perish. Well, Peter is writing this letter to Christian exiles, right? Christian people. And he's saying that he's not willing that any of us, the elect, would perish. And if that's the meaning, then we can go back and say that God is not sovereignly willing that any should perish actually makes sense. If it's about all the people in the world, it makes no sense, or all the people in the world would be saved. But if it's about just believers, well, then it makes sense that he's talking about his sovereign will. So I hope I explained that without confusing you too much. Man, I am... Mm, shall we do another episode? Wow. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's, that's, that's too much, right? <laughs> 
but I'm running out of time. I'm going to keep talking for a little bit. Let's see how much more I can talk about. Uh, so that was the next domino for me to fall. Once I understood that understanding of 2 Peter 3, 9, that he's talking about the elect. He's not willing that any of the elect should perish. I was like, okay, well, then I don't have an issue with this verse. It makes sense. Uh, the next thing that really clicked for me and was the next to last domino to fall was about the will. That the will is in bondage. Because that's the big thing for a lot of folks is they say, well, what about free will, man? What are you saying here? God just forcing his love on people? That's not what God's going to do, right? I mean, he, he doesn't want us to just be these robots who are programmed by him and then we just, we love God and, 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 and he doesn't want that, right? I mean, surely he wants people who are willing to love him, right? Who, who are willing to obey his commands. I would say amen to that. Amen to that. The question is, how can someone will themselves to obedience? How can they do that if they're dead in sin, right? How can they even will themselves to have faith? How can they will themselves to do anything that is remotely righteous if they are totally depraved, dead in sin, cut off from the grace of God, born in sin? Like, like how, how does that happen, right? How does someone actually become righteous before the throne of God and perform righteous acts before God and honor him in those acts? Because if the human will is depraved, it's only free within its nature. And so I, I'll use my friend Brad Russell's illustration of this, that you go watch the movie Free Willy. <clears throat> Willy, you know, in this movie... At the end, he's free, right? But he's not free to move to Kansas and to become a corn farmer. He's only free within his nature. He has to stay in the ocean and be a whale. And so, do human beings have free will? Sure, but they're only free within their nature. And their nature is fallen and depraved. So they're always going to choose sin. Even in their religious acts, they're going to be doing it for all sorts of dirty, secret, prideful, awful reasons, right? The actual nature of the man must be changed. The will must be freed from the bondage that it has to sin. We must be freed and given a new nature. And this is what God does for us in regeneration and in the new birth. And once we are freed from the sin that we are born enslaved to, we become slaves to righteousness and we are actually able to obey the Lord. And so when it comes to the issue of the will and free will, I say, I believe in free will, but we're only free within our nature. And if we're talking about truly free will, the only one who's truly free, right, is the Lord God. Uh, that's the only one who's truly free. So that was the next domino. And then the final domino for me really had to do with limited atonement. That was a tough pill for me to swallow, as it is for many. And... It was John Owen that kind of convinced me on that. And uh, John Owen in The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, he says, The Father imposed his wrath due unto, and the Son underwent punishment for either all the sins of all men, all the sins of some men, or some of the sins of all men. Okay? If he dies for all the sins of all men, well then, 
Owen says, why not? Uh, why are not all men free from the punishment due unto their sins? Why is everybody saved? If he died for the sins of all and he atoned for those sins, if he atoned for them, if he paid for them, and sin is paid for for all of humanity, then why would God ever pour his wrath out on human beings if it's already been poured out on his son? And then uh, if he died just for the sum of the sins of all men, well, that would just be hopelessness because nobody's saved. Or does he die for all of the sins of some men? Does he take names to the cross and make salvation definite for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world? When it comes to why not are uh, why are not all men free from the punishment due unto their sins? Why isn't everybody saved? The Arminian says because of unbelief, right? They didn't receive the gift. And Owen says, I ask, is this unbelief a sin or is it not? If it be, then Christ suffered the punishment due unto it, or did he not? If he did, why must that hinder them more than their other sins for which he died? If he did not, he did not die for all their sins. Did he die for their sin of unbelief? Did he already atone for their sin of unbelief? Then why would it hinder them from uh, from coming to him? So anyways... John Owen's argument there uh, helped me a lot, but then I also started to think, well, why would God punish people that have died? They have, they, they, or why would God punish his son Jesus for the sins of people who have died and, and have already gone to hell um, and they have already not chosen them? Like Old Testament uh, unbelievers, why would Jesus be dying for their sins? Uh, that didn't make much sense to me. And I also struggled with why is God punishing people for sin in hell that he already punished his son for on the cross if he died for all men? That didn't make much sense to me either. And so those were the reasons ultimately I did end up accepting particular redemption or limited atonement. And that was really the last domino to fall. And I guess I found myself believing in all of the doctrines of grace. And then from there, I would say it became, it began to permeate the rest of you know, the way I see church and worship and a lot of other things. So I need to wrap up this podcast. I, I wanted to get into John 6, verses 37 through 39 and John 6, 44, because that's the passage that probably did more to convince me, even more than Ephesians 1 or Romans 9 or a lot of those other typical passages. John 6, 37 through 39, John 6, 44, a sermon series my brother Jeff Beard did on that. Um, in 2009 at a church he was at that I attended for a little bit of time while I was finishing up seminary uh, was huge. So uh, that is a big, big passage for me too. But that's we'll have to save it for another day, folks. It's Reformation Day. You have candy to get, uh, I suppose. Uh, let's wrap it up here. Let's call it. How's your soul doing, brother or sister? How's your soul doing? Is God's grace at work in your life? I hope it is. Where would you like to see his grace at work in your life? If you think about these questions, you need to talk to a pastor. I want you to reach back out to me. If you've got questions about Reformed theology, send them to me. I'd love to answer maybe on a future episode. Uh, that would be a lot of fun. Connect at SeafordBaptist.com. Reach out to us. Until next time, keep living that pilgrim life. Happy Reformation Day!